It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. This is Brian, your host. I am a certified public accountant with a personal financial specialist designation, which means I'm a CPA that does financial planning as well as a certified financial planner. And you are tuned in to the Money Guy Show. We're broadcast both on Business Radio 1160 as well as worldwide on iTunes as well as wherever else you might be downloading this podcast. So welcome to the show. We're going to be jumping right in today and talking about asset allocation basics. I think this is one of those things where you have to come back and make sure that you know the details of what you're doing with your investments. We did the last show on investing, and now we're getting into how you take that investing, the idea that you need to be investing, and putting it to work for you by, by actually going deeper into asset allocation. I do want to give you the contact information. You can go check us out on the website. is money-guy.com. You can also email the show. That's brian at money-guy.com. I do want to address one quick thing before we jump into the sh- today's topic. I've been reviewing my iTunes ra- you know, ratings and comments left, and I've gotten beaten up here recently just a little bit, and I think it's more of a misunderstanding than anything else. I've gotten a little pushback some, from some of my, my old, long-time listeners that are concerned that the format's changed, that I'm coming back to review certain topics I've already done, and that's quite understandable. But remember, we're turning the bus around, picking up a few new students, because now we are on the Atlanta you know, marketplace on actual radio. We're going to get back on target after I bring everybody back up to speed. I think that it is never, you can never talk about some of these topics too much. And investing basics, um, asset allocation, the need for retirement, these are all things that I think even if you have heard the shows and I've just updated them recently, that you still should listen because they, they, they give you that, that core competency that you need to make the right decision. So I just want to throw that out there because I hope you guys know this is a passion of love. We got discovered from doing the internet show and now we're on the radio, got some other things in the works and we're, we're doing this for you guys to educate you. So I don't think you can go over the basics too much. But, um, I did want to come back and just bring that in there so you guys knew where we stood, but let's talk about asset allocation and the basics to do that. I've gotten about 10 emails over the last two weeks talking about, hey, Brian, I appreciate you talking about investing, but can you talk about asset allocation? Because that's what I need help with is telling me how to handle these investments. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing. Um, recapping, I did do a show back in January titled The ABCs of Asset Allocation, but many things have changed over the last nine to ten months since I did that show. We've added quite a few listeners now that we have the Atlanta market share. And... Um, also, a lot of you have sent me some emails just asking for specific discussion points. So I'm going to talk about that. And then plus I'm going to talk about how the market's changed over the last 10 months. I mean, it seems like we're in a completely different investment world when you hear us talk about some of these asset classes that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I think the timing is right also to build on the foundation since the last show was on investing in the basics of dealing with your investments. So I think the time is right to come back, regroup, and talk about asset allocation. So we need to first talk about some terms. The first thing, I'm going to go back and go real simple with some of these things. 
domestic stocks, if you're trying to figure out when people talk about domestic stocks, they're talking about companies in the United States. When you talk about large companies and large cap stocks, we're talking about U.S. companies with market capitalization rates that are greater than $11 billion. These are the companies that are really household names. It's your Walmart, it's your GE, your Home Depot, your Coca-Cola, Pfizer, Everything that you probably recognize if you go open up your medicine cabinet, if you go look at the car you're driving, all these things are large companies and you deal with them on a day-to-day basis. When you talk about mid-sized companies, mid-sized U.S. companies are mid-cap stocks. We're talking about U.S. companies with a market capitalization rate between 2 and $11 billion. These are companies that you you might have heard of, like H&R Block, um, but they're not the size of the previous group. I mean, they're, you know, an H&R Block is a good company. Uh, many of us have heard of it, but it's not something you would deal with, and it's not as big as much of a household name as like GE would be or Walmart would be. Um, and then when you're talking about small companies, a small cap stock is a U.S. company with a market capitalization rate that's below $2 billion. And you're probably not going to recognize many of these small companies unless you specifically use their product or they're in your hometown. Maybe you have a, a, a you know, a, a small public company in your hometown and you're familiar with them just because they have that that attention from being in your community. And when I talk about market capitalization, I'm talking about if you take the number of outstanding shares traded out there on the stock exchanges, multiply that by the stock price, you will see how much their market capitalization is. It's that simple. Um, when we talk about international stocks, we're obviously talking about companies that are based outside the United States. We're talking about companies like Nestle. You know, the, they, you know, they do chocolate. They do all kind of things. They do hot cocoa. I'm thinking about all the things that I use Nestle for. Um, they're based out of Switzerland. Uh, when you talk about Lafarge, you, do, you know, if you've had any concrete poured around the house or, or had any um, concrete work um, anywhere, one of the biggest producers of that type of, uh, of stuff is Lafarge, and they're out of France. Glaxo... GlaxoSmithKline is a UK company and Mitsubishi is a Japanese company. And what's funny is the, you know, Toyota, Honda, all these Japanese companies, the, the line's starting to blur a little bit in the fact of that sure they're, they're international companies, but it is interesting to me that you see a lot more of them doing a lot of factories uh, manufacturing facilities and everything else here in the United States. So they're becoming big employers, and, and the lines truly are starting to blur between what's um, international and what's domestic. But um, for, for right now, know that it's based based upon where they're headquartered and where they're the majority of their businesses is, is centered around or started. So that, that's what I talk about when we're talking about international versus domestic. Domestic is United States. International is anything, anything outside the United States. Value stocks versus growth stocks. This is something very important because you always hear people talking about value investing versus growth investing. Um, value stocks are stocks that are pretty much underpriced by the market for reasons that have nothing to do really with their business. Often a stock's only sin is not being part of the current hot sector. You know, you obviously when, and this is where you hear the rush to quality whenever the stock market does get beat up, you hear people rush to quality. They'll start buying like food stocks and things like that because we all, no matter what's going on in the marketplace, require food so you'll see people going out there and buying those type of holdings and then moving away from the hot electronic stocks so that's what i'm talking about they just a value company might be just not in the hot sector you know um google would be considered you know something a really 
you know, on the, on the hot side, kind of, you know, they, they, they're on the news all the time. You can't watch the news anymore without seeing them use Google Maps when they're zooming in on stuff. That, that's really a growing sector and Google's platform of all the different things they're doing. They've got even gotten into photo editing and all these other tools that you can use with just the Google platform. That's a growth sector. Value sectors are your tried and true. A lot of your auto manufacturers are, are value based because they've been beaten up. Um, you've also got, as I've already mentioned, a lot of your pharmaceutical companies are can be on the value side because a lot of people are going to always focus on health care and food items when things are be- getting beat up or just when they're focusing on what's value. Um, they have low price-to-earnings ratios, and their their debt is inverse compared to their, ec- their their equity on the balance sheets they typically have twice the assets of their than their liabilities so that means their, their balance sheets are much stronger than a lot of the growth companies out there if you need an example of a value stock you can go look at Dodge and Cox stock fund that's a good value um, stock mutual fund out there and its top holding according to Morningstar is Hewlett Packard company and um, HP's price to earnings ratio is um is 20.46 so that's getting closer to that what you hear in historic terms of that 15 pe um, that you hear people talk about when you're talking about value stocks when we talk about growth we're talking about stocks that have a projected or historic strong growth rates returns as equity and earnings per share you know these are all things that are really just cranking for these companies because they're really on the growth side of things and you're counting on that company to continue to grow because of innovation um, or just because of market share there's all kind of reasons why you think even a company that's gone up drastically in value um, is going to continue to do so and i've already mentioned google and google is a great example because you know you could have bought that back in 2004 when they did their crazy um, public auction for around $100 a share. It actually was a little more than that, but it dropped down right after the auction to about $100 a share. And now if you go look at Google, it's trading over $500 a share. So you can see, even though it seems somewhat expensive back even when it was $100 a share, somehow through market innovation as well as gaining market share and other things, that stock has continued to grow. And, and now if you'd have been in from day one, you actually would have made five times the investment that you of your original investment. Now, if you go look at their price-to-earnings ratio, Google's price-to-earnings ratio is 46.2. What's interesting to me is that when I did this show back in January, I did use Google as the example back then as well, and their price-to-earnings ratio was in the 60s at that point. So it is interesting, even though the stock has gone up, that that, that you see the price-to-earnings, meaning that they've actually made more money, which is a positive for the company. The easiest way to go out and determine the style of a stock or mutual fund is you can go out there and look it up at Morningstar.com. Just go out there and check that out. Morningstar has a great website um, to help you research what type of asset class uh, that your investments are in. So you need to go look at that. They, and Morningstar takes into account, you know, the company valuations. They take into account the the asset class. You know, that they do all kind of things go into their determination of what asset class these holdings go into. Um, now that we know these terms, how can we make these things work for you? And that's what we're going to be talking about right now and then even when we come back from our first break. Uh, you got to first determine if you're going to figure out how you can invest and take advantage of these things. You have to know where you are in your savings stage. If you're just starting out and you've not built up a nest egg over $200,000, I think, and remember this is just a consideration, I think you should consider sticking 
to one of the good fund of funds investments. And, and those are, I like the, the, the fund families like Fidelity, Vanguard that focus on low expenses that also usually have no commissions. Um, these are things where you have every dollar working for you. With these funds, you can determine, um, you know, really what you need and put it to work for you. And they've also added there's been all kind of innovation in the fund of funds investments. Now we have these target retirement funds. And what these funds let you do is you determine what year you think you want to retire, and then you can go out and purchase a fund that has that target retirement date. And what the great thing about these funds is is that they, as you get older, they're going their portfolios are going to get more conservative. You know, obviously they're taking more risk in the early years of your investment, but as you get closer to that target retirement date, they are going to get much more conservative with their approach. There is a downside to buying these target retirement type funds. Um, the downside, I think, is the lack of asset allocation. They stick to the tried and true stocks, bonds, and cash. They don't get into some of these other asset classes that I'm going to talk about later in the show. And, and that's all right, but I think it is a limitation because you get into stock markets like we had in 2000, 2001, and 2002 where – you know, your traditional investments like stocks are getting beat up. It's nice to have other things like real estate and commodities and, and, and absolute return strategies that will come in and pick up your portfolio when you are in those struggling marketplaces. Um, these, like I've already stated, these are okay as you start out, but after you build a sizable asset base, I really think you need to, to add these other asset classes that I've already kind of hinted at. That's that real estate, the, the absolute return strategies, uh, of long short funds and then also commodities. You know, you gotta have some natural resources in there, some oil and gas and, and other things to really complete your investment allocation. For those that are looking for the cheapest game in town, I think that, you know, you might want to consider looking at some of the index funds out there by Fidelity or Vanguard because those are the two best index fund companies out there, really, if you're looking at the internal expense side of things. Fidelity has one called the 4-in-1 Index Fund. That symbol's FFNOX. You can go out there and look at it. It's got 55% and the S&P 500, 15% in the small cap index, 15% in an international index, and then 15% in a bond index. So it gets you a little bit of diversification you know, for a really cheap price. Vanguard has this total stock index fund. Um, that's VTSMX. These are real simple choices that offer basic diversification. They have no commissions, and their internal expenses are so low that they're practically free. And um, But they do have the same limitations as those target retirement funds have, is that they only invest in stocks, bonds, and cash. So, you know, you've really got to think about, for those that have built up some holdings, you really need to go a step further, and that's what we're going to talk about. When I come back from this commercial break, um, when I come back into the next segment, we're going to be talking about going a step further and getting into the different asset classes, how you can use those as a tool to really expand your, your investment allocation. So remember, we're beyond common sense, so come back right after this break. This is Brian. If you enjoy the information that I share on The Money Guy Show, then you'll love my print newsletter, The Wealth Report. The Wealth Report is the custom quarterly newsletter that I send my wealth management clients, and I'm making it available to you for the affordable price of $29 a year. You can sign up at the Money Guy website. That's money-guy.com, money-guy.com. This quarter's Wealth Report covers how the weak dollar has affected U.S. investors, why you should avoid direct debits, avoiding mistakes on IRA rollovers, an update on college savings plans, and eight ways to save on life insurance. 
all this great information is packed into the third quarter wealth report. So what do you have to lose? You probably spend more than $29 on coffee each month. So take me up on this incredible offer and sign up today at the Money Guy website. Once again, that is money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. $29 a year. Do it now. Money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. And we're back. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. This is Brian, your host. I am a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist, which just means I'm a CPA that does financial planning. So getting back to the topic, asset allocation basics, we're talking about what we were talking about right before the commercial break was that, you know, for the basic simple investing, you might want to consider some of the, while you're building assets, getting to that 200,000 asset level, you might want to consider using some of these target retirement funds or some of the other options that are out there at some of the low expense, low cost fund companies like Vanguard and, and Fidelity. But now I'm coming back and we're going to talk about the different types of asset classes for maybe some of those that have built up their holdings or others that just want to go ahead and educate themselves even though they're in the saving mode. They want to go ahead and know about all these different asset classes. So let's jump right into that. When I'm looking at asset classes to use for portfolio management, I'm looking at domestic stocks. And remember what we talked about in the last segment. Domestic stocks just means U.S. stocks. I also look at international stocks. Fixed income, which is just another fancy way of saying bonds. Commodities, which can include natural resources, oil and gas holdings. Real estate. Now, real estate has been getting beaten up pretty handily recently. So when you talk about real estate, I'm not just talking about buying in the United States. I think you have to consider looking at real estate outside the United States as well and going international. And um, then I talk about absolute return strategies. Uh, these can be, you know, have also been called hedge funds, long short funds. These are funds that are looking to make money even when the stock market's getting beaten up. That's why they're called absolute return is they try to make money during any type of market that's going on. If the market's up there, you're hoping they're making money. If the market's getting beaten up, meaning when I talk about the market, I'm talking about the equity indexes and the Dow Jones, the S&P 500. When those things are down, you're expecting these absolute return strategies to make you money during those periods of times. And then, of course, we've got cash and equivalents. So let's talk about what a hypothetical individual with a moderate risk tolerance might consider for an allocation of their investments. And I want you to remember, this is just an example. I don't know your personal situation. I don't know your risk profile. And I don't know your your age, your existing assets, or your personal goals. So in other words, this is not a personal recommendation. So just realize that this is an example. But a, a person with a moderate risk tolerance might consider having an asset allocation of something like 5% to cash and equivalents. Uh, 20% to those absolute return strategies, those hedge funds, long short funds, um, 38% to domestic stocks, 16% to international funds, 2% to real estate because it is getting beaten up right now. It doesn't mean we go completely out of the asset class. It just means while you know the valuations are rich, the market's resetting itself, you don't want to own too much of that holding. So that's why we've pulled real estate down to about 2%. And then commodities, which are your oil and gas and your natural resources, which have been on fire here for the last few months. Um, you know, those you might want to have about 4 to 5% of your holdings in. So these are the different asset classes you can take into account. And I want to go and review each one of these so you can see how they relate. Cash. 
Cash you don't have to really feel so guilty about having these days because it's still yielding around 5% if you've got good money market account holdings out there. Um, I know it's not sexy to have cash, but there's still nothing wrong with having some cash out there to make it through those rainy day funds. Or also, if you've got something that's coming up in the next, really, three to seven years, you want cash, you know, or something that's very short term. I think a lot of people, I get emails, and I'm going to do a show coming up on the different type of uh, of choices you need to make based upon where you are in life. Because I have a lot of people who say, yeah, Brian, you're focusing on retirement a ton, but what about me? I'm that 25-year-old that's trying to figure out, you know, when do I buy my first house? And I'm going to do some 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 planning on that and go do a, a financial chaos topic and a show on that. But I do think that it, the basic simple advice I can give you is that if you need that money within the next, you know, few years, don't put it out there in bonds. Don't put it out there in stocks. Put it in something that's like a cash and equivalent. And that can be U.S. Treasuries. That can be a good money market. That can be a CD. These are all the options you have. Just make sure you're maximizing that return. If you're not getting close to 5% right now, you might need to go and make sure you've got the right type of investment. Now, this is probably going to change in the next few weeks to a month because, you know, the Federal Reserve has dropped interest rates in the last few weeks. They dropped it by half a percent. So getting into the next asset class, fixed income. Fixed income, because the Federal Reserve has dropped those interest rates by a half, it's really it's caused the, the intermediate and long-term bonds to go up in value because, remember, they have a, a higher interest rate than the short-term. So when you drop interest rates, there's an inverse relationship. When you drop the, the interest rates, when the Federal Reserve drops short-term interest rates, it does cause people who are already holding bonds with a higher interest rate to go up in value. So that's why your short-term bonds, because they do reset so, uh, you know, they reset within a year. They actually lost some value when they drop interest rates because now you, people know when they go and buy more short-term bonds, they're actually going to have a lower yield. So that that has been an issue for some of the bond funds out there. Um, when we're talking about absolute return strategies, these are those long, short funds, the, the hedge funds out there. These are like your Hussman Strategic Growth Fund. If you go pull up Hussman, it's H-U-S-S-M-A-N. Um, I like you to go read his research. He really, uh, John Hussman has a lot of nice research that you can go read about market commentary and everything else out there. Another local favorite that's done very well with some of the recent turbulence that's gone on in the equity markets is Caldwell & Orkin Market Opportunity. But no, these guys are pessimists all the time. I don't think they flipped the switch. Really, they made a lot of money in 2000, 2001. They did all right. 2002, eh. But they never flipped the switch when the market went up in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, I think they still were thinking things were looking pretty rough. So now that things have gotten a little shaky in the last month and a half, we've had a nice little rally here in the last few weeks. Um, but, you know, now we do have some volatility. Some of these funds have done very well. So you can go look at some of these things and figure out how they work for you. This class of investment used to be reserved for the wealthiest individuals. But now anyone can invest in, you know, in this unique investment class uh, of mutual funds. I really think that you ought to go look at Morningstar's New category called long short. You can go do some research, figure out which fund you want to buy. And I would focus on the ones that, that are less risky. Risk is a very important thing with these long short funds. You can get into some of these things that have a lot of risk and then you can get into some that have 
as little risk as a bond portfolio. So they give you a nice little exposure where you can have the downside protection just like bonds provide you when the equity markets get beat up. You kind of count on bonds to go give you that diversification. It's the same thing with these long short funds. If you're buying the right type of funds, you're counting on this as giving you some downside protection. Domestic stocks. I think, remember, domestic stocks are U.S. stocks. I think when you talk about this, you need to think about 50 to 70% of your exposure in this investment class should be in large cap holdings. That's your big boys. That's the ones that we've already talked about that have that market cap over $12 billion. That's your Home Depot, your GE. You know, just go buy the S&P 500 for that type of exposure. I personally like exchange-traded funds. That's the ETFs, index funds, because uh, it's just such an efficient marketplace in these areas. Mid- and small-cap exposure can be trickier because you need a good manager. These markets are not as efficient. I mean, there's a lot of managers. Uh, there's just a few managers and analysts covering a gazillion stocks out there, so you got to make sure you got the right type of guys buying your stocks for you. Um, and it's a little tougher because a lot of the good small-cap funds – because a lot of them will close their doors to new investors because they don't want to get too big because when they get too big, the government kind of regulates how much they can buy of individual stocks. And since their focus is going to be on small companies with market capitalization less than $2 billion, you can imagine that if they turn into too big of a fund, it limits their upside. So a good small cap mutual fund manager is going to shut their doors to new investors pretty quickly. So you've got to pay attention. And if you find a good manager that's got a good history on the small cap side, you need to consider sticking with them and hanging in there because those are good managers to be with for the long term. Because once they close your doors, man, do you feel good that you're already in that investment class. When we're talking about international stocks, the lion's share of your investments will be in large European countries. But you also might want to spice up your asset class with some exposure to emerging markets like Latin America and Asian. Be careful with your risk profile, you really need to take a, take into account how much risk you can handle because when you look at things on the international holding side, like emerging markets, there's a lot of volatility there. I mean, it's not uncommon for these things to have a standard deviation or fluctuation of 20%. I mean, these things, can you could make 40% one year, but then you could be down 20% another year. These things are like a roller coaster. So when you're looking at international investments, especially like emerging markets, make sure you're taking into account your risk level because that's very, very important. Real estate. This asset class is currently being hammered. Nobody is buying real estate right now. I mean, it is one of those times where we've seen values have come down. We've seen, um, you, you know, occupancies um, in some office buildings have been down in certain market, you know, in, in certain cities and so forth. But actually on the commercial side, things have not been as bad as they've been on the residential. Real estate on the residential side is what's really getting beaten up. On the commercial side, it has not been as bad. I know specifically down here in the southeast, we have not had um, as bad of the problems on the commercial side. I was talking to some commercial real estate guys um, just in the last week, and they seemed like they, you know, sure, market was down a little bit, but they were still busy. On the residential side, things are uh, it's, it's really bad. I talked to some mortgage brokers last week, and a lot of their income pools are down 60%. Can you imagine what happens if your income was down 60%? That, that's just not a great feeling. But this has been in the making for a long term, for a long time. Back in January, I warned I've been 
um, calling for a pullback in REITs and real estate mutual funds for the past two and a half years, but they keep appreciating. Be careful here because you do not want to top the market. And now we've seen that's exactly what happened. We've had a nice little pullback on the real estate marketplace, and I still think that they have some room to go down a little further south. So um, I'm going in the third segment. I'm going to be talking about some emails I've gotten from listeners, actually reading a few of those and giving you some answers. And one of the things that's mentioned in there, and I don't know if I'm getting to that specific email, but somebody mentions they they think that they should be loading up on real estate right now. And I think you got to be careful. I don't know if it's time to be rushing right in for real estate right now, just because. You want to be a contrarian doesn't mean you go out there and buy into something that still might be a little bit on the overvalue side. Uh, but real estate works out as a great diversifier. Like I said, this is one of the things that saved a lot of the portfolios I was managing back in that 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, where the, the equity markets were getting hammered during those periods. It was nice to own real estate. And we've also seen in the last two years a lot of international real estate funds pop up. And this is good because a lot of international countries are a little behind on um, some of the ways of financing and other things that have allowed the real estate marketplace in the United States to expand so quickly. Well, now some of these structures have have leaked over to, to Europe and elsewhere, Germany, and, and you're starting to see those marketplaces pick up. So you might want to consider diversifying your real estate segments, not just the United States domestic real estate, but look at some of these international real estate funds. They, they've done very well over the last two years. The last segment I want to talk about is commodities. Man, what a run oil and gas has had, as well as other natural resources. You know, when you talk about timber and, and things like that, they've had so far in 2007. Uh, you also talk about gold. I mean, these are one of the things that when you talk about inflation, it scares me a bit when you see what's going on with oil, gas, and then when you also look at the price of gold, it does make you wonder what's going on out there in the world of inflation. Um, I've dialed this allocation back a little bit just because, Oil is trading at about $80 a barrel right now, which <laughs> seems a little high. You know, who knows? Maybe it might sound cheap in a year or two when we're sitting at $100 a barrel, but right now it seems a little high. I'm hoping that if we have a mild winter and the world doesn't have any gl- big global disruptions, that maybe we can find another opportunity between now and February of 2008. If you want to know what, see what a big difference nine to 10 months can have, when I did this original show back in January, um, Oil was trading around $50 a barrel. Can you believe that? We're sitting around $80 a barrel right now, and back in January, um, it was in the 50s. And, and I even had, here's the exact quote that I used back in January. This may not be a bad time to add a limited exposure to this asset class. We all know that last year, oil pr- prices ran up to $78 a barrel. And I'm not so sure I feel that the world is stable enough to sustain the low 50s for a barrel of oil currently. So as you can see, man, I wish we could go back in time with that time machine and go load up on some of these commodities, but that's not the prudent thing to do. We don't, we're not market timers. We don't take too much risk. You've always got to take into account with your asset allocation that you're doing everything you can to make sure that that allocation reflects your risk level. Um, I have pulled back a little bit on commodities to take a little bit of profit in, in light of everything that's going on recently. When we come back from, with the final segment, I'm going to wrap up our discussion of asset allocation. Plus, I'm going to get into some some listener emails and um, you know review that a little bit as well. So stick with me. This is Brian, your host for the Money Guy Show. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like 
the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job, educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. So we're back for the last segment. This is Brian, your host for the Money Guy Show. And I just want to review with you guys the importance of asset allocation. This is, and maybe I didn't talk about it enough in the first two segments, but it's a good time to review it now that we're, we're, we're at the review section of our show, is that asset allocation is really going to be your life preserver if things get bad for you out there with the stock market. I, I know it's, it, it seems hard sometimes uh, to be a prudent investor, And it's not so hard right now because we have market volatility going on. But I'm just reasoning with you. If you go back and look at historical returns, and this is not so long ago, but if you go back and look in the 90s, when we had that stock market of 96, 97, 98, 99, and then the first part of 2000, where really it was not uncommon to get 28 to 40% annual rates of returns. I know that sounds insane these days, but that's really what was going on out there in the marketplace during that time. And it was, if you were a prudent investor, you know, just doing this diversified asset allocation approach that I've talked about in these previous two segments, you did not look like you were a smart individual because your friends at the, the cocktail parties, the Christmas parties and everywhere else that you might be going, um, were, were walking in and saying, Hey, that, that, that science and tech fund that I've got a hundred percent of my 401k in made a hundred percent last year. You're like, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm diversified. I've got my money spread out, and I only made, you know, 25%. And, and you, you you look back, and you're like, gosh, you know, I'm missing out on all kind of opportunity. But then this is the way asset allocation works. It rewards those that are patient because you have all these people that made all this money back in the 90s. And then what happened to those people? This is what happened to them. The stock market of March of 2000 kicked in where things started adjusting themselves. We had that bubble, that technology bubble, where everybody who's – if you had a dot-com in your name and you went to a venture capitalist, they'd give you hundreds of millions of dollars to go out there and see if you could make a profit. You didn't even have to be profitable, profitable back in the early 2000s um, if you just had dot-com in the name of your company. And we saw that excess got worked out of the marketplace. It was um, – you know, we had the, the correction of 2000 where the market got beat up. 2001, it continued to go down. 2002 was a bloodbath. So all those people that made money during that late 90s period, if they weren't prudent and didn't diversify or use asset allocation, a lot of those people still have not recovered. And, and I'll tell you the reason that is so important to put in your mind is because if you lose 20% because the market went down, and that is very, very possible because you talk about the market of 2002, the, the S&P 500 was down over 20% that year. You talk about you know, what happened in 2000, 2001, one year was down over 
12 to 14 percent. And then in 2000, it was down a good bit as well. You can see how hard it is to recover because if you're down 20 percent, you've got to make 40 percent to make it back. It's not like you lose 20. You just had to make another 20 percent back to to recover. It doesn't work that way. You've got to double those those previous losses and gains to, to just get back to ground zero. And that's the part that I think you've got to realize because I say that it's always so easy to make money when the market's up because rising water lifts all boats. But when things get ugly, when the equity markets adjust, that's when if you've done what you're supposed to with asset allocation, you will be safe. You will minimize the volatility. You will minimize the loss of purchasing power. You'll minimize the impact to your retirement investments. And that's why you've got to be patient and prudent because we will come through these periods. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me why you've got to be a prudent asset allocator. It's just like I mentioned in the previous segment about commodities. In, in January, I, I was bragging about how I, I saw an opportunity because all Barrels of oil were trading around $50 a barrel. In January, that seemed like a no-brainer because I'll tell you, I saw an article that said that um, there were there were a lot of companies out there that have figured out how they could pull oil out of some of the ore and other things that, that it doesn't make sense if oil goes below $45 a barrel. So you know your baseline on how cheap oil can be in the future is probably around $45 a barrel because there's technology out there where we're getting outside oil sources um, to extract oil from some of these places that are increasing the supply. Um, you know, those things cease to exist once you go below 45 So 50 seemed like we had $5 down exposure versus, you know, 28 to $30 upside. And now we're in the 80s. I, I just – that's where – You've got to realize that there might be another adjustment down. I could be wrong. We could go to $100 a barrel. But the point of me bringing all this up is is that what if you're one of those people that, sure, you've nailed it right. You went and put 100% of your assets into oil, and you've made this big $30 a barrel gain, which, you know, that's significant. You could be up 30 to 40% right now just in one year, um, in a year that the market has quite a bit of volatility in it. So you're looking like a genius. But if you haven't locked in those gains – and that market adjusts again and goes back down to $60 a barrel, you're left holding the bag. And, and that's why, like I say, you cannot get greedy when you're working with your long-term money and your assets because that's what's going to determine how successful you're going to be is how you handle your money and make sure that you're, you're being prudent with it and taking into account your risk profile. You've got to take into account how many years you have until retirement, or how many years until that ultimate goal. Maybe you're saving up and your long-term goal is to have that second vacation home or it's to buy that convertible sports car, you know, that 66 Mustang convertible. Um, these are things, you know, there's nothing wrong with having these long-term goals. You just have to, you know, plan for them and then be prudent with your investments to, to make sure you're doing what's right. So you've got your time. It goes into your risk profile. You've got your how much you have currently saved up, your asset class, you know, the, your previous existing assets, because obviously somebody who's just starting out who has $5,000 to invest is going to have different asset allocation than somebody who's worth a half a million dollars or, or $2 million. I mean, it's just your assets, your time, 
as well as your age and your your in your goal structure as well as how much risk you're comfortable with as an individual goes into what type of asset allocation you have so you need to take all that into account and make sure you're doing everything you can with your current investments your retirement investments that are in your 401k's or other retirement accounts that you're taking all that into account so i just wanted to go over that with you because i think it's so important to know where you are personally to make sure you're doing the prudent things for your investments. So let's talk about I've gotten some 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 emails and I think one of these ties right in to 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 risk. Um, I had a, a a doctor who 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 does listen to the show who who wrote me an email and I'm not going to use his name, I'm not going to give his, where he works or anything else like that. But he wrote me an email and it says Brian, I love your podcast. I'm a new physician. I'm not going to tell you where he says. He tells me in the in, in the email. And working towards accumulating enough wealth one day to qualify for your services. I have two questions for you. Number one, pros and cons of cash value life insurance. Our planner, our current planner, is advocating this is a tier two savings slash investment strategy. I don't like it as an investment vehicle, and I'm not sure about the tax benefits. What is your take? So there's the first question about cash value life insurance. The second thing is is pros and cons of carrying high mortgages. Our planner gave us an article talking about how the wealthy try and carry as high a mortgage balance as possible for tax benefits. Instead of paying down the mortgages, they invest extra money to get a better return on their investments and have liquidity, something you don't have with built-up home equity. They actually recommend interest-only mortgages. I am uncomfortable with this. Have you heard of this strategy? This is actually what some advisors out there telling one of my listeners. So you hear this, and my alarm bells went off. I, and I've had a chance to talk to this doctor and you know and try to put him on a path that I think is reasonable. But these two questions, by the sheer fact that he wrote this email to me, these strategies. First of all, I don't agree with either one of those strategies, but I think that they also hit upon his risk tolerance. Um, there are people that, that believe having a big of mortgage as possible is a good idea. I think those people are realizing now with this down real estate marketplace that maybe that strategy hasn't worked out for them. Because, yeah, there is the analytical discussion you can always have about how if you invest the money and never pay down your mortgage, you will have more money because, you know, historically the stock market's gone over a very long term. If you look at from the 1950s to now, you know, historically you go return somewhere between between 10 and 12 percent if you just bought an index fund and sat on it. Versus your interest rate on your mortgage might be somewhere between five to seven percent. So, you know, um, you know just keeping it that way, you're like, it's a no-brainer. I should never pay down my mortgage. But that is so because I think you've also got to take into account the psychological benefit of, you know, having no debt. There really is some benefit there. And I'm not advocating to go out if you get a lump sum to just immediately pay off the mortgage. You have to analyze really what your tax benefits are as well as where you are. But I do think it is something you should consider, especially if you're getting close to retirement. I do like all my retired clients to be completely debt-free, meaning they don't even have a mortgage. Because when you already get into retirement, you have so many other things to worry about. Because now you've got you know, the, this the stress of that you're only not working anymore with your hands. The only thing that can work for you are your assets that are in the bank or your pension. 
you don't need to have debt where you're worried about somebody taking your house. So I think these things play into it. And um, I think people who say, do brag about the tax deduction that you get, need to recognize that there's a, a hidden flat tax out there called the alternative minimum tax that just rips your heart out if you make over $150,000 a year. It really cuts out a lot of your deductions. So a lot of you will find your mortgage tax deductions that you get from, you know, the interest deduction you're getting from your mortgage is pretty much not worth as much as you think it is once you start making good money. Um, once you break that 150, once you really break 200,000, those deductions all but disappear and you get into alternative minimum tax, which is essentially a flat tax. Um, the other question he had mentioned on here was um, uh, the, the pros and cons of cash value life insurance. I think you buy insurance, you know, for insurance purposes. I don't think it's a great investment unless you are one of those people that's so loaded that you might want to consider buying a life insurance policy just to make sure that you can pay the estate taxes so because you don't want to lose your beach house, you don't want to lose your mountain house. I mean, there are people like that, but that's few and far between. The majority of the people out there really should look at insurance as a replacing their income. Um, you know, they're not doing enough to save for retirement, yet they have these big cash value life insurance. They really should go buy a term policy, you know, eight to ten times their income on term, and it's dirt cheap. I mean, they're practically giving this stuff away and then let you go out there and invest and focus on what you need to do is building assets. Um, I did want to kind of respond to, to, you know, I just wanted to let you know that's kind of how I've responded to this listener, this doctor, and um, let them know that if you ever get advice from somebody and you don't feel in your gut that it's good advice, don't take it because you'd be surprised that that intuition, a lot of times, it is right. So be careful out there in the financial world. There's people out there that might be trying to put you in products that you don't feel comfortable with, don't do anything unless you truly recognize and understand exactly what you're investing in. Also, I got, I'm running out of time, so I've got to hurry up. This is another email I got from a young listener. It said, Brian, thanks for a great podcast. I've really learned a lot. I have a question about investing. I'm 22 and thus uh, afford a little risk in return for greater reward. I know you recommend buying a stock and not touching it for five to seven years. However, in a down market like right now, Nearly all my equities are down. What would be wrong with selling almost all of my equities and either keeping the money in 5% interest savings account or buying something like the Hussman Strategic Growth Fund? Currently, I have about 10% of my money there and then repurchasing my old equities once the market starts moving up again. Um, now, this, mar this was sent to me back in August, back when the market really was all over the place. And I think the listener, Michael, would probably now recognize that we've had this nice little rally here in the last few weeks that he's glad he didn't sell out and sit on the sidelines because, yeah, that sounds great in theory, but who knows when to buy and sell these stocks? That's what I always tell people. Sure, it's great if you can get out, but when do you get back in? Because typically the best rallies occur right after down markets. So you don't want to get into that whole timing marketplace mantra because that's I just don't see how you can do it. I think you'll lose a lot of sleep. And there's people, I've met people who've been very successful in the short term with timing, but eventually the market gets up with them. Because the market in the short term, remember, is emotions. It is the greed and the fear that is driving. But in the long term, it truly is fundamental financials of what's going on in these companies. So you don't want to get caught up in that. So I hope that some of this has sunk in today and helped you out. Until the next time, I'm Brian, your host. Stick with me. We're going to get you some great shows, and I'm going to change your life if you can give me one hour a week. I'll talk to you next week.
The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.